Welcome to our Human Experience Podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy and the history of domestic service and much more. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we're talking to Dr Justin Ellis, a lecturer in criminology in the School of Humanities and Social Science. He studies the impact of digital media technology on crime and criminalisation and how it affects police accountability in cases of police excessive force. Thanks for joining us today, Justin. You're welcome, Belinda. Criminology is a fascinating topic as it looks at the uniquely human social problems of crime and the question of deviance. Justin, your work is in the area of digital and queer criminology. I'd love to hear about the main aspects you focus on in your work. Sure, Belinda. So my research focuses on digital criminology, the impact of digital technologies on crime and criminalisation. Uh, has has become increasingly topical as societies have, have become more digitised, so in the last 20 years, roughly, or from the late 1990s onwards. And it contributes a perspective that goes beyond the technological uh, to document how the on and offline worlds combined are shaping the human experience. A lot of research in what we might consider digital technology focuses on things like cybercrime and how digital technologies have impacted fraud, for example, or or child sex abuse. But my research within the, within the auspices of digital criminology looks at the broader impacts in how and how humans are interacting and the, the I guess also the impact on um, institutions uh, and their legitimacy. And uh, the queer aspect of my research looks into the state regulation of sexual orientation and gender minority communities uh, with a current focus on police, LGBT community relations. Excellent. So these days, I know a lot of your work has to do around smartphones and um, monitoring of police operations that way. And we all carry around our phones. We can all quickly film something or take a photograph of something just on the fly and upload it to social media, to YouTube, things like that. Um, we've seen how this ability to record police operations has had a huge impact recently in the USA with the tragic death of George Floyd. Um, through your research, in terms of that, how, how has that ability to quickly film something impacted police operations and police accountability? It's a good question and the George Floyd case raises many issues that police and public have been dealing with really since 2013. Uh, and this is where my research has all of a sudden become incredibly topical because I focused on a case study of police excessive force at the 2013 Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade. Unsurprisingly, 2013 is also the year that Black Lives Matter was set up. So what we have in that year is a combination of factors. One is the increased capacity of smartphones. What we also learnt through the case study that I studied about the Mardi Gras 
and Black Lives Matter emphasised is that it's lawful, generally, to film police operations in public. So overnight, the police were put on notice. Another aspect of my particular case study was that the police in that instance directed or suggested to the person that was filming that they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. uh, and that video, we, don't, we wouldn't think now that having a million views a week later was very substantial, but in 2013 that was a lot. And that case, that case was the first viral case of police excessive force, or one of them in Australia, that definitely um, put the police on notice. But the question of police accountability, we saw in that case that, yes, it makes the police respond uh, in a way that they typically might not, because there are more demands for information. And there are uh, longer, or, or there are more demands over a longer period, because people online can be constantly questioning the claims that police are making. So that means that the police have to justify in more detail what they're doing to sustain legitimacy, so the trust and confidence that the public should have in them so that they can solve crime, prevent crime and, and what have you. If we go back to the George Floyd case, the teenager that filmed that uploaded it directly to Facebook. We know in some instances that the police might destroy evidence from mobile phones, um, they might trespass and destroy the evidence. So the significance of the bystander video in conjunction with uploading it to social media means that A, we've got a scrutiny mechanism of police operations in public. And in that, I guess the question we can ask, Donella Fraser was the teenager that uploaded it to Facebook in the case of George Floyd, what might have happened if she hadn't done that? And in a range of um, countries with Black Lives Matter protests, there are images of people saying, well, what would have happened if this wasn't filmed? Serena Williams came out and said, how is this different to the 1960s in terms of the treatment of African-Americans by police? And she said, well, really, the fact that it's being filmed is the major difference. So the other thing that we've seen with the George Floyd case that people might not know about um, is that just because there's been lethal or excessive force doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the officers will be sanctioned in a way that the public might expect. So we've seen with Derek Shaven, the arresting officer in the George Floyd case, he's been arrested and is now in custody in Minneapolis and he's been, he's been charged with murder and manslaughter. That doesn't always happen. The three officers that were assisting him have been charged with aiding and abetting. So that doesn't always happen either. So, so that case in particular um, is significant in the way that 2013 was in Sydney um, and largely because of filming and the ability to upload to social media. Mm. So going back to that 2013 case that you did a study on, can you tell me a bit more about that case? I believe it was a, a young fellow attending the Mardi Gras, uh, had an altercation with police. Tell me about what happened. This case is interesting and again touches on aspects of, of the George Floyd case. Jamie Jackson Reed was out on at Mardi Gras in 2013. He was he was arrested for um, offensive language assault police or sorry offensive language resist arrest and assault police. And in in legal terms, these are considered minor public order offences, but they have a significant impact on the individuals, their families, their communities, and the police involved. So, what happened there? As I said, that was filmed. The police officers were directing the, the person filming to stop. Or, or, and there's a big distinction here between asking someone to move away, because it's generally lawful to film police operations in public, being asked to move away versus directing someone to stop filming or questioning the lawfulness of that particular activity. So there were two, I guess, transgressions there. 
one was excessive force because the magistrate did rule that it was excessive. Mm -hmm. The other was the direction or the suggestion that lawful filming of police operations in public wasn't legal. And then what we've got from that case is, I guess I tracked what happened in the criminal cases. There were two criminal cases, or three criminal cases actually, but two high profile ones, uh, and then a range of civil claims. But if we go back to accountability, if it's if they're criminal cases and the media picks them up because they're high profile, then we'll have a reasonable understanding of what happened. Uh, the it's notable also in the Jackson Reed case that the police withdrew the charges because they clearly thought that they didn't have a likelihood of success in, in attaining a conviction in that case. But that's also incredibly costly. Mm -hmm. And the magistrate in that case noted um, that perhaps the, the police commissioner was becoming, uh, what was the word, I think, didn't want any more media attention. So the media played a, played a uh, emphasised the scrutiny in that particular case. The charges were dismissed. But then what we've got is, okay, so, so Jamie Jackson Reed was awarded uh, costs. Mm -hmm. But the other thing to, to bear in mind in these cases is that that doesn't always cover all of your costs. Mm. Then the other issues are with police internal investigations that, that the police launched in the three main cases from Mardi Gras in 2013. Mm -hmm. The results of those aren't disclosed to the public. And we, re we learned recently off the back of the George Floyd case that the arresting officer in, Jamie, in the Jamie Jackson Reed case in 2013, it took the police three years to dismiss him. Mm. But the public might think that there's an obligation by the police to report this back, but there isn't. Mm. So there's still a big gap between what some interested publics might expect mm -hmm. and what the police are required to do. Mm -hmm. So do you think this uh, high level of scrutiny that we can now put the police under has changed police accountability? Another good question and, and, and not, not necessarily an easy question to answer because a lot of these problems are cultural and we've seen that play out in the States with the George, George Floyd case. I think in Connecticut... There was one police force that was marching with protesters. Mm -hmm. So we've had a range of responses. And, and uh, so a lot of this is cultural. We've also got to think of the legislative parameters. But there's, but there's consistent dissatisfac public dissatisfaction with police complaints handling, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if police invoke that internal investigatory power, that means, as I said, that the public don't have access to that information. So mm -hmm. we've clearly got the media's, the, well, the social media and bystander video is playing an increased role. The mainstream media might further the story and, and um, repackage that and reframe it and keep it, keep it going, mm. which means that more people might come forward and feel comfortable about coming forward because they're having their experience validated. They're not at home thinking, did that just happen to me because they're feeling the trauma of being assaulted or, or what have you. They're going, yes, that did happen to me and it happened to him and it happened to her. They're piecing that all together mm. and usually you don't have that ability. Yeah. So, but it is case by case. And structurally, in the United States, what we've seen recently is, I've, I've talked about the arresting officer being charged with murder and manslaughter and his, his co-officers co being charged with aiding and abetting. That's pretty uncommon. And from the Mardi Gras case study, you can hear people in the video saying they're all involved, as in the other, there were six officers involved in, in that particular case, the Jamie Jackson Reed case, and you can hear the civilians saying, you know, all of them are involved, they're all responsible, they're all, they're all culpable. Mm. We're seeing um, not only in the George Floyd case, but other jurisdictions in the United States acknowledging that yeah. and suggesting that there will be revisions of police powers so that 
officers attending scenes like the George Floyd case should be required to intervene mm. instead of just letting that officer go. Yeah. And also in the George Floyd case, we had Daniela Frazier and one other bystander telling the cop, Derek Shaven, to get off his to get off George Floyd because he couldn't breathe, etc., etc., etc. But then another complication in that case was that Daniela Fraser was criticised online for not doing more mm. because she didn't intervene. So if we've got if we've got people afraid of the police, mm. as she said, I'm 17, mm. I felt fearful for my for my own safety. Um, I did what I could and she, she did. She stayed out of the way. So in terms of the lawful filming of police operations in public, she stood out of the way. She held her hand steadily and, and took a consistent shot. So it was pretty clear what was happening. So she's made a, ma it's a, public, it's a major uh, contribution to, to, to the public interest in those cases. But accountability is patchy. But we know from common law jurisdictions like Australia and its states and territories um, that have a that operate on the basis of policing by consent, for example, that we have this perpetual dissatisfaction with complaints. There isn't enough transparency about the outcome of internal investigations. And then what we've got on top of that is that if you settle a civil claim, which is what happened with some of the cases after the 2013 Mardi Gras, mm. they're subject to non-disclosure agreements. So the public are really unable to evaluate police claims of reasonable, necessary and efficient expenditure of public resources yeah. because most of that information is unavailable to them. Mm, mm. So how do, we, uh, how do we evaluate the financial costs of these, of public order policing as such? I guess what we, what we might try and do is get more exposure of those costs. Mm. Often they're printed in police annual reports but they're aggregated. Uh, and they might say, you know, there were four, I think from 2016 there were, in New South Wales, there were 41 cases um, where the police settled uh, to, to a total of $1.6 million, I think. But that, that sum doesn't include the, the amount of money it costs to defend the cases. So when I did my FOI from Mardi Gras, for example, that I sought information from the Mardi Gras Festival 2013, there were four civil cases settled the, the damages were about $250,000, but the legal costs mean that the overall costs to, to bring those or to, or to defend those cases was about $700,000. Mm. So I guess to answer your point more succinctly, what can we do to equip the public with a better way to evaluate uh, the well, police claims of efficient public resources is to be able to get access to the numbers, mm. not only of the damages, uh, and costs, but also the legal costs that are incurred to, to defend those cases. That would give us a comprehensive understanding of how much those cases are costing, how many, what they're brought for. But then also what happens to the police afterwards. There's also a call in the States, and I think it's the New York Police Department. They have suggested that they will release officers' prior rec or rec records of complaints made against them mm -hmm. so that they can potentially be used at trial. And that would also provide us with a, a more comprehen comprehensive understanding of, of the history of the officer, how many complaints they've had, held, um, had made against them, how many were sustained, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it would feel we, we, we've, got a, we've got a data gap, mm. I think, financially and also behaviourally. Mm. And if we think that the officer in the Jamie Jackson Reed case wasn't dismissed until three years after that case, there was a lot of fear about that case. And because it was on social media, social media doesn't tidy up 
those kind of distressing, uncomfortable situations in the way that mainstream media does. You're kind of left with it, wanting to know more or, or feeling afraid. And I think that what we're seeing in the States is an acknowledgement in some jurisdictions that people are afraid mm. and they're afraid of the police. Mm. And mainstream media would typically present it the other way around. So um, the police in some, and again, in some jurisdictions are acting very quickly in response to the criticisms mm -hmm. that they're suffering, but in others, they're not. Um, and that speaks to the, to the cultural origins of some of these issues between police and public and trust mm. and confidence. So that step towards transparency there by the New York State Police with opening up the backgrounds, is that kind of an unprecedented thing? Most of, those, most of those previous complaints wouldn't typically be considered mm. and typically each case is taken on its merits. But I think clearly there's an issue with some repeat offenders, some police officers who are repeat offenders, and there needs, there needs to be a, a way to address those issues more quickly. Because yeah. if it's taking three years and the public are afraid of a particular officer, that's a public safety risk as far as those people are concerned. So, so the way that it's brought about, again, could maybe to do with reforming internal processes and resolving those matters more quickly, but also in some way reporting that information back to the public mm. so that they know that the danger or the fear that they may have felt about a particular officer mm. uh, that they no longer have to. And that'll also, that'll also impact their relationships with other police. Because people extrapolate. Another aspe aspect of my research was that from the from the um, Jamie Jackson Reed case, even three years later, when I was I did an online survey as part of my research, and some respondents said that what it did, what the video did, was it they may have, if we think of a Likert scale of strongly agree, agree, neutral, um, disagree, and strongly disagree, it might have shifted or shifted their sentiments towards the police from a from an agree in terms of trust and confidence in the police to a neutral. Mm. So will that, that might impact people's ability or interest in reporting crime to the police in seeking their help uh, and, you know, police, the broad, the broad remit of, of policing is to, to solve and prevent crime. Mm. But if you don't have a willing public, then obviously your ability to do that is limited. Mm. So through this particular case study, the 2013 one on the Mardi Gras, and your other research, what have you found about the impact of digital media on police public relations and how this might impact longer-term relations between the police and the communities they're involved with? Again, that's, that's jurisdiction-specific, but to respond to the, the historical dimensions and the impact that digital media might have in connecting those historical police transgressions to the present, definitely. And we saw that with the 2013 Mardi Gras case where there were even articles in the conversation about connecting that particular incident to the Mardi Gras protests, the, the inaugural Mardi Gras parade in 1978. Mm -hmm. Now, we've got many, many, many decades in between those two incidents, between 1978 and 2013. Decades of police reform, decades of police professionalisation, much of it f for the better, uh, and a lot of improvements were made, particularly after the New South Wales Royal Commission into Police Corruption that handed down its findings in 1997. So the impact on police, though, is that 
the legacy, what, I, what I'm calling legacy scandals, like the, the inaugural Mardi Gras parade where 53 people were arrested and their names, professions, dates of birth were published in mainstream media. That gives you an indication of how much sexual citizenship has moved in terms of the rights of particular groups. If we compare 1978 to the same-sex marriage survey in, in 2017. But the problem for the police is that it, it remains a reputational issue if these legacy scandals, transgressions are perpetually tied back uh, and connected to contemporary events. And there's an increased likelihood that you are going to be scrutinised because of the ubiquity of mobile phones, because of their, their increased uh, capacity of, of mobile cameras, uh, upload speeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, and the public awareness that it's lawful to generally film police operations in public as long as you stay out of the way. Yeah. In your research, you talk about legitimacy being negotiated between police, the public and the media. So what I wanted to do was break that down and understand it a little bit more, is what you're saying is that although police have legitimate powers under the law to enact their services, they sometimes are illegitimate because they're using, abusing that power and using force successfully. Is that what you're getting at there? Yes, and it's... It's complex in the sense that they might be sworn officers, they have the backing of parliament, uh, they have the state monopoly on use of force and there's a, there's a valid reason for that because if you, if you don't have those parameters set very clearly then you get a whole range of other, other behaviours that, you know, vigilantism for example, that ha raises its own issues, that's, that's usually a symbol of degeneracy and decay and lack, and lack of social control and social cohesion. But with this is where the, the timeliness or expediting officers who transgress more quickly and some public notification of that is really important because the public don't know what happens in those cases. And so it looks like the police institution is still endorsing that behaviour because we're none the wiser. Mm. They may not be. They are, they are often, I'm gathering, going through complex um, laborious procedural processes to expedite as much as possible removing those officers from the force. But if we don't know, then how can we make sense of, of what's happening and, and I guess be provided with the assurance that we need that the police are doing all they can yeah. to keep us safe? That makes sense. What would you like to see in terms of what the police need to do? Is it just a whole nother level of transparency or that kind of closing the loop and reporting back to the public when these scandals happen? We probably need a revision of complaints handling. That's, that's probably a definite. But we also need public notification of, of particular cases if they, if they have been in the public interest to show that the that the police force is doing all they can to reassure the public. I think they're, they're two things that could be done. The other is the financial dimension that we were talking about and the, the, the efficient expenditure of public resources. So there is potential to lay out in more detail the costs of, of civil cases that police settle as a barometer of uh, the frequency of those cases, the reasons why they're being brought and the reasons why the police are defending them. And over time, that means that the public will have access to that information, journalists will have access to that information and expect it so that they can evaluate on an annual basis the frequency uh, of these of, of particular incidents, the money that's being spent, public money that's being spent to resolve them. Uh, and so on. So there's, there's three things I think that could be, could be looked at. Mm, definitely. 
You also do research into the fear of crime and I was interested to know how that relates to the case study on the Mardi Gras. I can give you an example that connects fear of crime to the, to the Mardi Gras case study and, and I guess the ongoing necessity for police to be vigilant about the trust and confidence that the public have in them. The Scott Johnson case. So he died after falling from a cliff at North Head in 1988. There was three, an unprecedented third coronial inquiry into that, in that particular case. And this, this also provides us a window in terms of the development of sexual citizenship over these decades. The first coronial inquiry ruled that it was a suicide. The second coronial inquiry ruled an open finding, so they couldn't determine exactly what happened. The third, uh, which was conducted, I think, in 2017, and the coroner found in that case that Scott Johnson was likely to have been the victim of a prejudice-motivated crime and was and, and died as a consequence of a fall. Mm. So... Um, quite a shift. Quite a shift. That case was also controversial because Scott Johnson's brother was a dot-com boom entrepreneur, incredibly well-resourced, hired his own investigators, and the New South Wales Police Force alleged that he had been given preferential treatment because of his capacity to, to generate media exposure and so on. But a question to consider, like the George Floyd case, how might this have come, what might have happened as a consequence of that case if it hadn't been filmed, if Daniela Fraser hadn't videoed it? What might have happened in the Scott Johnson case if his brother didn't have the resources to arguably perhaps realise what all victims, the treatment that all victims should be receiving? Mm. So that's a counter question that I, that I raise, particularly with students, because we're looking at it going, well, why was there a third coronal inquiry? Most people don't even get a second coronal inquiry. What's special about this case? Mm. And I would argue that there are elements of it that say, well, okay, victims need to be prioritised and they're often not in our criminal justice system. So it's, it's worth considering that um, perhaps we sh we, in, a, in an ideal world, we'd all, we'd all have that um, level of, of scrutiny and and uh, resolution of, of our cases. Mm. Um, so to kind of wrap this up, what's the key takeaway message from the research you've conducted over the years that the police as an institution need to understand, do you think? What we've seen with the George Floyd case and a whole range of protests around the world, including in Australia, is a, an awareness raising of the relationship between the public and the police and a renewed call for more transparency and accountability, and this is across jurisdictions. And there is there is a confidence problem in terms of complaints in particular across, across jurisdictions that police by consent. So really, there's a big message here for police in that if you're, you may be doing very well, but there are still areas within which you can improve, likely complaints, likely the disclosure of outcomes of police internal investigations, adhering to other procedural justice guidelines and so on and protecting protecting elements of privacy, but there's also a public interest. That balance, I'm not sure that balance has always struck um, because the public need to be reassured that the police are doing everything that they can to, to keep people safe and so on. But it's also sending a message to potential recruits for police forces. The message is, if you're going to, hopefully the message would be, if you're going to use excessive force and be found to have used it repeatedly, it's a mess, policing's a messy business. But if, you are, if you're a repeat offender, the message is, the message should be, don't apply mm. for these roles. You are, you're suited to do these jobs. Go somewhere else. 
So there, there are a couple of the messages. The expenditure, the financial expenditure on defending cases that may have contravened public sentiment about what's lawful and what's necessary in a particular case. That's another dimension I guess I haven't really gone into in much detail from the Mardi Gras and again is related to George Floyd is that that bystander video distributed through social media gives the police a very frank assessment very quickly of what's acceptable to which members of the public and they can choose to do something about that or not when they pursue cases that look like excessive force, like the Jamie Jackson case, that sends an unconvincing message to a lot of public audiences that the police are taking these matters seriously. So the fact that we've seen the Minneapolis police who were involved in George Floyd's death have now, have now been charged over the incident, where do you think we go to from here? I refer back to, I guess, some of the other points I've made in the interview in that one of the problems with oversight of police and police accountability is that it's often assessed on a case-by-case basis. We need systemic change. And it's yet to be seen what the outcomes of the George Floyd case will be, but it'll be highly jurisdictionally dependent. In some jurisdictions, there's a call to defund the police. You might have seen that and, and, and listeners might have heard about that. And part of that movement is in response to repeated calls for more transparency and accountability from police that has not come. And if we go back to the 1990s and the the Rodney King, the beating of Rodney King by four LAPD police officers in 1991, there's a long history of cases of police excessive and lethal force. And obviously in the States, we've got a combination of race and guns that amplifies the um, tragic results of those interactions. The takeaway message for the public is that Filming police operations in public is generally lawful and it's a huge public service. It also comes with costs to the individuals themselves, but to sustain that recording, to, to make those practices visible, it means immediately we can get a frank assessment of, of what's, what should be lawful and, what's, and make a distinction between law and culture and police culture. And I think that that's something that we all need to be reminded of Justin, it's been really interesting talking to you today about your research, which is really obviously making um, some very important inroads into aspects of policing that really affect the community. So thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome.